I received a magazine in the mail this week, um, and on the cover of it was a picture of our globe, the entire Earth, planet, and it was wrapped in a mosaic of cell phones. And the picture was about massive change that our world has experienced very recently, and it said by the year 2020, in five short years from now, 80% of all adults in the entire world will have a smartphone in their pocket and be connected to the internet. Not just in America, every country, four out of every five adults. That's not even counting the kids, and many teenagers have these things as well, and younger kids. So the world is changing rapidly. And in the article, it talked about some other major revolutions in society. It mentioned the invention of a book, and we take for granted. It mentioned the invention of a clock, which seems relative, especially this morning. It mentioned the invention of the engine, the internal combustion engine, and how much that changed how everybody lived. And so what we find is if you look at the history of humanity, there are moments when things change dramatically. Some event happens, some invention, some, um, somebody comes on the scene, something happens, and life is no longer the same. And it's quick, the change is quick, and it catches a lot of people off guard. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the moment of change that happened when Jesus showed up at the temple. And as we have been preaching on lifting Jesus up this Lent, I want you to see that Jesus is the Lord of the temple. And we're going to explore that concept today. If you take what is called a harmony of the Gospels or a synopsis of the Gospels, they will, there's a book called a harmony, and it will take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put them in columns, and it will line up every single word that is in all four of the Gospels uh, chronologically, and it will leave big spaces to line up events that one evangelist is talking about in the same place that another evangelist is talking about. And oftentimes you, can, you see the similarities, but there are some differences too. What's unique about this story that I just read is it happens in the second chapter of John's gospel, which is right at the beginning, whereas the other three evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put it at the very end of his ministry, right as he goes into the temple on the week, uh, Holy Week before he's crucified. And I'm not going to get into why that is or, or, or maybe one of the questions as to whether or not there were two cleansings of the temple or if, if he just changed the chronology of things. You can wrestle with that on your own. I want to make a point, though, about, for John's gospel, why that's important. He wants us, the reader, to see that Jesus means change. His advent is going to change everything. And so as we read through John's gospel, expect that Jesus is coming in and it is not business as usual. He wants the reader to see that. So at the very beginning, chapter 2 here, he does his first miracle, turning water into wine, and then he comes in and he clears the temple out with great power and authority. This is a miracle that happens here in the temple, and we don't quite appreciate that. Um, if, if you read it on paper, somehow you miss the feel. He broke the expected norms of how, how things in the temple work, and it got everyone's attention. And religion is like that where we've got rules. And if you break those rules, it gets people's attention and catches them off guard. And we have those rules in here too. For instance, when I preach, I'm not allowed to get outside of the rail. But if I break this rule while I'm preaching and I go, hey, guys, Brian, we got to be serious about the Lord. Come on, come on, you guys. And I go around like this. You're, I have your attention and you're very uncomfortable, right? This, this is it, Mike. Don't go past. This is as far as you go. So that's a very small scale example of what it felt like when Jesus went into the temple. They went up to pray just like they always do. 
And all of a sudden, even the disciples were caught off guard. Jesus grabs some cords, makes a whip, and he starts hitting the animals on the rear end and says, and he's yelling, get out of here, get out of here. Everybody's shocked by that. And we don't quite get the gravity of it. It's so shocking. He turns over the money tables, hear coins hitting the, hitting the ground, and see people groveling around to collect up their coins. Here's why I say it's a miracle. You know the Orange Park uh, craft fair that's up at the town hall in the yard there? Imagine going in there and dumping those tables one by one. How many tables do you think you could dump before some big guy goes, you're not touching my wife's table? <laughs> you know how long she worked on these crafts? You are not about to dump that onto the ground. And, and, and so why is it that Jesus was able to walk through there and do that and nobody touched him? Nobody stopped him. It's because he has incredible authority. There were a number of instances in his ministry where he did something that was highly offensive, and it says the crowd rushed at him to try to kill him, but he just walked right through the crowd. It was sort of like everyone's going, you grab him, no, you grab him, I'm not, tu- I'm not touching him. It, he's so powerful and so, so much authority was with him that he was able to go in there and cleanse out the temple. Listen to what happens at the end of his teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know, when the scribes taught, here's what they did. Rabbi so-and-so says this about that thing in Moses' writing, and Rabbi so-and-so says this about Rabbi so-and-so, and they were all appealing to, like, authorities. Jesus came and said, I've been with the Father I only say what I hear from him. This is the truth. And, and they, they, they were saying, Who, where, where did he study? Where does this man have this learning? What is this new kind of teaching? And with such authority. And the crowds marveled at Jesus. It's his temple. He's the Lord of the temple. And he went in and he cleaned house that day. And it meant big change for everybody. He has the authority to do that. If you jump ahead in, or in, in the Bible story and you go to Revelation which John also wrote, there's a passage in there where he's getting a vision. And it's a vision of the very last end times in the judgment. And, and something really powerful happens. Let me read this just a couple verses to you. John, it says, he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's on this scroll? All of history. It's the, it's the final unveiling of justice to all the nations. It's when God is going to put everything right, and there's this last scroll, and there's no one who can open it except one. There is one who has the authority to do it. And the Lord, who's called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, he's got a hundred names because of his, who he is. He is able to do it. He has the authority to do this. Now, when you think about the majesty of our Lord and his authority and his power, here's a question really worth wrestling with. What does it mean to invite him into my life? What does it mean to invite the lion of the tribe of Judah into my life? Anybody have a pet lion at home? (laughs) 
Just think about what that would do to your home. It's a powerful thing. And many of us start with our need, and we come to the Lord, and we find a Savior. God, I have this need. Save me. And He comes and He saves us. But what, we, what we're a little bit slower to embrace is that He's not just our Savior. He's also our Lord. And He's the Lord of our temple. And He will cleanse it out from time to time. He will do things that will fix our situation. And sometimes we don't like it. It's uncomfortable. His passion in the temple was brought about by a couple of things. I don't think it was so much that he was offended that they were selling cattle and exchanging the coins. That was actually a service to people because the rule for any Jew was on the Passover feast was to travel up to Jerusalem and participate in this great feast. And if you were coming from you know, Spain or Asia or somewhere far away, to bring your own lamb to the sacrifice would have been very prohibitive. It'd take you forever. It'd be hard to do. Um, and when you get there, there was a specific currency that had to be used for the temple tax to, to come. You don't come into God's house empty-handed. They have to pay a tax, and you're not going to walk in there with some Asian money with some emperor's head on it. You, you have to change your currency in and use the currency for the temple. So where do you do that? Well, you need, you need somebody to serve you in doing so. Now, no doubt, they were raising the interest rates. The exchange rate wasn't good. They were starting to extort. They were charging way too much for a simple pigeon or whatever. So there was some of that. But the real issue comes out when Jesus' rebuke is spoken. He says, you're, you're making my father's house into a den, den of thieves. And in the, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says, it's supposed to be a house of prayer. You see, what was so offensive was that there was a transaction happening instead of prayer and worship. They had gotten into a marketplace situation instead of hearts coming to connect with God. And if you were in here when I read the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments says, I am a jealous God. God is jealous for our worship and our hearts. And things that get between us and Him, He's got to clean out. He doesn't like that. He, he went into the marketplace and He saw basically religion transactional religion, where everybody was going through the motions and doing their stuff, instead of worship and prayer, which is what God's temple, His house, is supposed to be. It's interesting, personally, my experience on our Wednesday night worship services has been really uh, gratifying, edifying. What we've done, if you've not been here, is we've brought the baptismal font up here and, and celebrate communion on it right there. And I intentionally have gotten away from using the formal liturgy that we use on Sunday mornings and have, and have tried to pray an extemporaneous prayer to consecrate the bread and the wine. And in, in doing so, it's forced me to think about how we are coming to God. What is this that we're doing? What are we doing here at this table? The danger for us is that we can go through the motions because we know them so well. I would guess that many of you actually know by memory almost the whole Eucharistic prayer. You could probably pray it without thinking about it. And that's the danger, right? You go through the motions. It becomes religion and a transaction, and you're not, you're not walking in going, I'm coming into the presence of Almighty God, and I'm a broken sinner. I need some atonement. I need blood covering on me. And that was the whole thing, is you don't come into the temple without something to offer in your place. And we do that every week where we come in, and we are reminded that Christ has laid down His life for us. And do we think about it? Do we acknowledge it. Is our heart there? Or are we caught up in the transactions of religion and going through the motions and the habits and all this kind of stuff? I wonder in Lent, if you're doing any particular practice of fasting or, or taking on some new practice, 
Are you doing it for a relationship or are you doing it out of religion? Because authentic Christianity is a relationship and religion is just habits, behaviors. And if the religion doesn't serve the relationship, then all you're doing is going through the motions. So Jesus comes and challenges the heart of the whole thing. To make him Lord invites him to come into your life and to act. Now there are two things that get reformed here. One is prayer and one is worship. And look at what he does in this passage when he, when he begins to verbally rebuke them. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. In referring to God as my father, Jesus was really changing their view of prayer. The Jews were so conscientious about not breaking the commandments and taking the Lord's name in vain that they would never use the name of the Lord. God gave his, uh, his name to Moses when Moses said, who are you? Who should I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. And he used the Hebrew verb for being, existence, to be. It's the word Yahweh. But see, what they did is they didn't want to, to risk taking the name of God in vain. So they distanced themselves by it by using this rhetorical trick called a katib kare, which in Hebrew means it is written but say. So they would write the four consonants of the word Yahweh, but then they would stick the vowels from the word Adonai, which means master, sir, or Lord, over that, which created a word that doesn't actually exist. It's the word Jehovah. And they, they would read, and as they got along, when they came to the word Jehovah, they wouldn't say Jehovah, they would say Adonai, but everyone knew they meant Yahweh. That's how they had to pray. That's how they had to interact with God. And Jesus comes in and he says, take this out of my father's house. What Jesus did to prayer is he showed us an approachability and a side of God that we could not have possibly understood apart from his relationship as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He showed us an intimacy. He showed us an approachability to God. He taught us, when you pray, go into your room and pray to your Father in heaven. And he is jealous about things that keep us distant. And so he comes in and he cleans house. And it makes me ask the question, what is blocking intimacy in my prayer life? Is God now distant, holy, scary God again, and I'm not connecting with him because something has crept in? Is there something blocking me from intimacy with the Lord? It's so easy to let something creep in there. So he changed prayer. The other thing is he changed worship. And back in Ezekiel, there's an interesting vision, also a vision of temple worship. Ezekiel, it's interesting if you read eight, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11 in Ezekiel, the prophet gets a vision of the temple, and in the vision he sees all kinds of abominations, terrible things that the people of God are doing in the name of religion in the temple. And when Ezekiel gets this, this vision, he sees God's glory leave the temple. Let me find it here. I just want to read one little uh, passage to you from it. It's so interesting to me, this picture of Solomon's temple. And, and when Solomon's temple was dedicated, it was with great power, the cloud of God descended upon the temple and remained in the Holy of Holies. And so there was this huge curtain to keep people away, and they only could come in on one day of the year to offer sacrifices. And when Jesus on the cross dies, the temple curtain is torn open, signifying that God's glory has broken out. But back in Ezekiel, we see the glory's already moved on. What happens is this, this vision shows God's glory lifting up off of the Holy of Holies, the, the Ten Commandments that are in the Ark of the Covenant, and it goes out. And it says this, the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. 
You know what mount is outside the east side of Jerusalem? It's the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. All that's over there. When Jesus comes in the glory of God again, in from the eastern mountain into the temple and declares it's out of season and unfruitful. And this is the second temple, mind you. So Solomon built a temple and it got torn down by the Babylonians. And then Zerubbabel built a second temple that Herod the Great helped expand. Took 46 years for this expansion. And when they dedicated the temple, there was a weird mixture of shouts. Some people were really excited. Yay, God wins. We've got our new temple. But right mixed in with that were the older people, the elders, who were weeping and crying because God's glory wasn't there. And they remembered the former glory. And they were like, this is not it. God's glory is not here in this temple, not like it once was. And here comes Jesus, in from the east, in from the mountains of the east, walks into the temple, and he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. Now, the reason they asked this question is because they saw his authority in his teaching, and they said, who gives you this authority? Give us a sign. The Jews always wanted a sign. Give us a miraculous sign to prove this. And he says, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. Now, John is a, gives us a spoil here in the story. If you're reading it straight through for the first time, he tells us how it's in, to be interpreted because he doesn't want you to miss the point. He was talking about his body. He was not talking about the building. He was saying his body is the fulfillment of the temple. Christ is the temple, the new temple. The Spirit of God was with him in that temple, and his glory was being displayed on the cross, the resurrection, and ascension. And Paul tells us in Ephesians that we also, who are in Christ, are that temple. He says, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, Christians, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a, whole, a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So he says, he is the new temple, and all who are in him are the stones he's using to build that temple. If Jesus is the Lord of the temple, you can expect him to come in and cleanse it. And he's going to do so to have holy worship and intimate prayer with the Father. That's what he's about. Now, what does that look like in your life? It looks unique in each instance. This morning, I was reading some of George Mueller's uh, a biography about George Mueller, who was a 19th century missionary in Bristol, England, who cared for orphans and had an unbelievably powerful prayer life. And when he was converted to Christianity at the age of 21, he had a really great sense of God's presence and began to worship and pray, and his life was changed. And then he had to lay down three things. The Lord of the temple came in and challenged his own situation in three areas. There's, these were all good things, but they had come into his life in a way that weren't that wasn't in alignment with God's will. One was a book. He was very smart and was commissioned to translate a book from English into French. And he did it simply because he wanted to have an adventure and have money to go to Paris. And he finished the whole book and something got hung up with the, the publisher and he, he ended up burning the book, his translation of it, because it was something that had come between him and God. And he started to see this. And then he got into a relationship with a woman. And while, again, dating is not a bad thing necessarily, it was not what God had in mind for him, and he had to lay that relationship down. Again, it was something between him and the Lord in his intimacy with the Lord. And then there was a third thing, and that was money. His dad had been paying for his schooling, but did not want him to study what he was studying. And so he felt like he had to say, no thanks. I'm, I'll, I'm, God's going to provide for this a different way. 
and he ended up becoming a tutor in some, some language work and made money to pay for his schooling that way. Again, there's nothing inherently wrong about those three things, but it is wrong if it comes between you and the Lord. And in George Mueller's instance, he had to lay those things down. That was part of the Lord saying, get out of the temple, get these things out of the temple. They're not for you. You and I, if we have Jesus as a Savior, also have him as a Lord, and he will speak to you about things that are keeping you from a good, close, intimate prayer life and a worshiping life for him. What is it that he's asking you to cleanse out? That's the question this Lent. That's the question this morning. What is Jesus saying, get out of my temple? And are we willing to obey when we hear that? Now, as we did last week, we're going to go right into prayer this morning. I'm going to bow my head and um, just say a concluding prayer, and then I'm going to ask Brian to come up here, and he's going to lead us into the prayers of the people. So why don't we kneel? I want to invite you to kneel now, and let's indeed make this a house of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you as people who have just heard from your word. I pray that you would speak to each one of us about anything that is hindering our prayer life, that is keeping us from being people who worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray for you to give us the courage to lay those things down and to choose you over whatever they might be. Come, Lord, and help your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. the time in our service we're going to have a time of prayer together for the needs of our church for our nation and for our world i'll pause after each prayer and encourage you to offer your own prayers either silently or aloud during that time let us pray O oh lord grant that all who confess your name may be united in your truth live together in your love and reveal your glory to the world Lord, we ask that you guide these people of this land and of all the nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. Bless all those whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Father, we pray for the needs of this parish, both tangible and intangible. 
please move on our hearts to walk in freedom, generous towards work and mission. Let us be mindful of your coming kingdom and serve you as our Lord and Master. Lord, we ask that you comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind, or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them to the joy of your salvation. We specifically pray for those in this parish, Gail, Sybil, Bob, Joey, Losey, Bonnie, Libby, Roberta, Yaha, Elizabeth, Sandy, Carol, Steve, and Jared. We also pray for those who mourn, for Jenny Hertel and her family on the death of her father. Lord, in your mercy. And now we'll pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Would you please stand? The peace of the Lord be always with you. Exchange peace with one another as a symbol of God's reconciliation. Well, please be seated. I want to give you some instructions and an invitation to the Lord's table. You know, to be a disciple in this world and